All right, welcome to another episode of the Light Bulb Factory, conversation centered on the church becoming the light of the world. This episode is another recording from our college worship gathering, but this week we had a guest speaker, my good friend Colton Kisner, who I worked with at our church in West Virginia just a few years ago. He came down to speak with us, and so I'm excited to uh, introduce to you a good friend of mine. I think you're going to love this episode. It's a joy to be here. Uh, Thank you, Ryan. Um, for inviting me, man. Uh, as Ryan said, uh, God just has really blessed the friendship that that really only got a year to kind of take root um, back in West Virginia. But we had the joy of of kind of prolonging that a little bit while I've lived down here since 2016. And then when did you guys move? In 17. So for the past three years, we've gotten to kind of reconnect. Ryan and I would meet in Waxahachie. I don't know if that's how you say it. Texas has weird town names. Waxahachie, great. Okay, so that's where we'd meet, and it's been just a blessing um, to be with, uh, to reconnect with Ryan and grow with him and enjoy the friendship that God kind of established. So uh, I wanted, I did want to, I had like a long spiel, but then I started building my sermon. I was like, I don't have as much time as I wanted to commend Ryan to you, but so let me just, bottom line, you have an amazing man in Ryan, and today we're going to be talking a lot about authenticity. That's, that's really what Jesus, I, if I could sum up his teaching here in Matthew 6, it's authenticity. And Ryan, even before, I, again, I got into the, the work of the passage and started building it, like, I kind of practiced my own, like, how would I commend Ryan? Um, just looking forward to that. And the word that was jumping off was, I would just commend him as an authentic dude. Like, you're not going to find Ryan following the, the pre-paved ditches um, of our, our Christian past simply because it's our past. I'm not... I'm not dogging on that. Um, I think our ditches are good, but, but you're going to see Ryan willing to kind of leave those ditches for the purpose of, and with the freedom of the gospel, um, to, to make greater strides and lengths in laboring and making disciples of Jesus and helping people to enjoy God forever. Um, and so you just have an awesome dude in him. Um, never be hesitant to go to him if it's an idea that's outside of the typical church box. Um, I think you're going to see Ryan welcome that, and he's going to enjoy the conversation on that. He might not agree with you. He doesn't agree with me all the time, um, but he's going to welcome that, and so I just, I commend him to you. Um, I've got to start my timer here, because as I said, I've been going long in all my practicing, and so if I don't have a timer, we're going to be here all afternoon. Um, So let's get to the text. Matthew, I want to kind of reach back into Matthew 5. Ryan assigned me Matthew 6, but I I felt like I wanted to kind of grab the verse that transitions us into Matthew 6. As you may well know, Jesus did not preach from a Bible that had chapters. He didn't preach from a Bible. Um, and, and, and the Bibles after Jesus spoke and after his time did not have chapters and verses. So never let that get you distracted. Look at the whole context. I love the digital Bibles that we now have. Um, as you can see, I'm preaching from one. Um, and, and because we can go in and we can say, take those numbers off. Let me just read the text, and it's a wonderful gift, so I I commend that to you as well. Matthew 5, 48, I'm going to reread it. So then, and I'm sorry, I'm reading from the NET. If you're reading from the NIV, ESV, whatever, um, it really shouldn't matter. But if afterwards you're like, my text doesn't say that and it makes a big difference, let's talk. But uh, I don't think it will be. Matthew 5, 48. So then be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then he says, be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. 
I wanted to, to reach back to the previous verse because I, I think Jesus is transitioning from the preceding section that Ryan taught on. In Matthew 5, Jesus, in his pronouncement of what we're calling the upside-down kingdom, raises the bar of righteousness. He says, if you're going to be my disciples, you're going to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And that would be a sobering thing probably for that audience. It should be sobering for us when we, when we heard that, when we explored that with Ryan, and as you've read that before, that Jesus is raising that bar. And I think it's made most clear and most poignant in 48 when he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is not trying to, to make disciples who are half-hearted and kind of one foot in the kingdom, one foot on earth. His passion and his drive and his purpose is to establish a whole new uh, way of life, a whole new vision of life, something that humanity has not seen at least since Adam and Eve spent their days in the garden. From that time on, we have been adrift, and Jesus is, is correcting and setting a vision for, in one sense, the coming kingdom, but we are moving towards that kingdom, and he's establishing it. And so he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you are called to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the particular niche that Jesus in Matthew 6, I think, starts to, if you think of him, he's hammering in a nail that he starts hammering on here in, that we're going to look through in Matthew 6 is motive, authenticity. The, the verbiage he uses, you're practicing your righteousness. You, you call this righteous deeds. And he's wanting us to consider that just doing what might be called righteous deeds, just doing what may be called good deeds would be immature. It would be shallow. But rather, why are we doing these righteous deeds? To some extent, what is it about them that makes them uniquely righteous? And if we don't get that right, you'll see him use the word hypocrite over and over and over again in this passage, as if to display a righteous deed. But because the heart and the motive is in the wrong place, it's an unrighteous deed. And then the warning that he gives us is, you have no reward with your Father in heaven if you, if you practice your righteous deeds for the purpose of being seen by others. And, and I want to make sure we comment on that as well. He's not saying don't practice righteous deeds in front of people. Right? We know he can't be saying that. That's definitely not what he's saying because what did he say in early Matthew 5? Let your light shine before all men, all people, so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to the Father. So he's not saying that. He's not saying you're condemned if you're seen by others doing righteous deeds. He's saying if your motive, if your primary desire is to be seen doing righteous deeds, you've tainted the water. You've, you've defiled the righteous deed, and it's not a righteous deed any longer. It's an unrighteous deed. And he's warning us. He's warning us to check our hearts, check our motives as we set out to follow him in obedience in doing righteousness. And he says a great deal is at risk here. You will lose your reward with your Father in heaven. 
if you do this, if you do this incorrectly, if you do it wrongly with the wrong motive. And so I wanted to start there just to kind of set a tone, to say Jesus isn't playing games. I, I'm not wanting to play games. Like I, I want, Jesus really hit me hard when I read this, and I thought, man, that's, that's just sobering. I, I want the reward from the Father in heaven. That's why I'm following Jesus. It's because I, I, I want to hear the commendation of the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. And so I just, I just want to set our, our tone for our time together that when, when you're hearing Jesus' warnings and when he's detailing out all the ways that we can go wrong in our motives, that he's laboring for that because if you do these righteous deeds with the wrong motive, it's a waste. They're not righteous deeds. And that's a serious, serious thing. Moving on to verse number two, Jesus is going to give us three categories, three particular arenas, um, examples of righteous deeds that uh, most certainly could be or are likely to be done in front of others. We, we probably won't conduct or engage with these activities without at times being in front of others. And so it's very relevant to the initial command of don't do it for the motive of being seen by others. And he's going to kind of enter into each one of these three spaces. He's going to look at prayer. He's going to look at, uh, uh, I'm sorry, he's going to look at charitable giving, then prayer, and then fasting. So verse 2 will kick us off into charitable giving. And we'll look at each different example and kind of expound from the text from there. So verse 2, thus, whenever you do charitable giving... Do not blow a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in synagogues and on streets so that people will praise them. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. But when you do your giving, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your, so that your gift may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus has an ideal group of people from the religious circles that are pioneering the way of, of example of how not to do charitable giving. And I find that ironic and interesting. And it happens in all three of these categories, mind you. And so it's, he kind of gives an, it's almost over the top. It's almost as if Jesus created these. And a matter of fact, if you get into the commentators, some would say, Ah, he may or may not really be talking about trumpets that were blown, and, and I don't want to make too big of a deal of it, but I, I just, I can't come to terms with Jesus creating this category and saying, look at the guys who do it this way, but they're not really a real group of people. I think there was probably really this group of, of people, of, of uh, religious folk, that whenever they went to give, there was trumpets blown to draw attention to them. And I imagine uh, they gave the equivalent of the modern day making it rain and just began to flourish their giving so that everyone could take note and see what they were doing, that they were generously overflowing what they have into the needs of others. And he says, don't do this. This is prime example of what not to do. And then he takes us a little bit further he says, but rather, verse 3, when you do your giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And I think, I don't think he's 
literally talking about you have to sit on your left hand until it falls asleep and then you can give with your right hand. I don't think he's saying that. I, I think he is pushing at us to say, the point here is don't do righteous deeds for the commendation of man. Don't do it for the reward of the praise of men. What are you? You're a man or a woman. You're a human being. So if your right hand is watching that your left hand, you might even turn inward on your own heart and say, well, I feel good about myself. You raise your self-esteem. I gave today. I gave generously. And Jesus is saying, even that, don't, don't try to obey God. Don't try to perform righteous deeds for the purpose of your own commendation or the commendation of anyone else. But instead, fix your gaze on the most precious reward that you could gain, that you could attain out of your righteous deeds. And he refers to that as, your, uh, as the reward from your Father who sees in secret, from God. And I, I wanted to squeeze on this text so bad, and, and I, as I was even talking with Ryan, I was like, I want to jump over to Romans, man, and I want to do this and this, because I so badly don't want us to miss what is the reward of the Father. And I think we could have done it, but at the end of the day, I don't think we need to. And, 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 and the point is, is that Jesus is trying to enunciate, he's trying to, to, to get you, and, and we'll conclude looking at this, to again consider all the rewards that you can gain out of performing righteous deeds with your life. Jesus does not want you to waste your life. That's what he's concerned about. That's why he came, to save sinners so that they would not waste their lives on the pathway to hell, but rather that they would have a life and they would have life abundantly and that they would enjoy God forever. That's why you were created. That's why you exist. That's why God molded you and crafted you in your mother's womb, that you would enjoy God forever. And that's what Jesus is concerned about. And so this reward that he has in mind is in line with life abundant. And he says, if you fix your gaze on the reward from the Father, then you will not meddle with giving for any other purpose, any other motive, but only that your Father would see it. And this, this might rub against some of you too. Some of us, I think, and I'm, I, I kind of shared this philosophy at one point, but, but it shifted because somebody showed me in the Bible that I don't think it's, it's biblical about our anthropology, about our humanity. This may rub against you because you're saying, wait, 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 Colton. Are you saying that Jesus is encouraging us to, to do good deeds, to do righteous deeds for self-gain? That the way that Jesus is telling me to go and perform my charitable giving is so that I might gain, that I might have more? Isn't that hedonistic? Isn't that selfish? And I'm telling you, no. And I think Jesus would say, absolutely not. Let me go back to the phrase I used earlier. You were created to enjoy God forever. The psalmist describes the presence of God as being at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what I'm looking forward to is, is being in his presence. And that's not to tear away from who he is. That's all because of who he is. And I'm telling you, Jesus wants you 
to set your gaze on the reward of the presence of the Father, the rewards of the Father, the treasures of the Father, and go get it. And run hard and serve hard and spend your life pursuing the reward and you won't waste your life and you can be a really happy Christian doing it. He's saying, say no to the pleasure of man's commendation. Say no to the pleasure of your own commendation and set it on one that will never fade. And that's the well done, good and faithful servant from the Father. And whatever else may be implied when Jesus says the reward from your Father. Let's look at verse 5. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray while standing in synagogues and on street corners so that people can see them. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not babble repetitiously like the Gentiles because they think that by their many words they will be heard. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Probably should have referenced this earlier. We're going to I'm going to cut out the Lord's Prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Ryan is going to, or somebody will, pick up Ryan and I as we were talking about this section of, of Jesus' sermon that, that there is a lot that could be expounded upon and that will be really good to dive into from the Lord's Prayer. So we're going we're gonna to cut ourselves off right there and then we'll skip down below the Lord's Prayer here in a minute. Um, but I'm not going to handle the Lord's Prayer other than for the purpose of, of our context here. Um, and so Jesus, once again, has the ideal group of who not to be like the hypocrites. And he describes they stand in synagogues and on street corners for the purpose of the exact thing he says to be careful not to do. They are exemplary in doing it, and they do it for the purpose of being seen by other people. And I didn't comment on this in the previous section, but it's repeated over and over again. He says they have their reward. And I think we should read in that sentence a judgment. He says the hypocrites who are manipulating, who are inauthentic in these good deeds that God has created for mankind, they go to participate in them and they want some other reward other than the commendation of the Father. And Jesus says they get it. This is probably all the more another reason why Jesus opens us up to say, be careful be careful when you go to do righteous deeds and doing them for the wrong purpose because you might get what you actually wanted and you'll lose out on what they were intended for. That's a scary thought. But he course corrects us when it comes to prayer and he says, so instead of following the example of these other guys who go out and they pray in public to receive their reward. Verse 
uh, 6. Go into your room, close the door. And, and by the way, room there is not the generic term. It's not, it's not the general term used for room. It actually is it's referenced to, you'll, some translations will say, inner room. It, it's referenced to a room that typically didn't have windows. Um, it, 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 was, it was a secretive room, kind of a, a much more alone space. He says, go into that room, close the door, and pray to your father in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Do you see, I just want to make sure we're seeing the hypocrisy, at least in reference to prayer here, because I think it's so easy today to get wrapped up into it. And and the reason that it's easy is is because, not, not to a fault, but we have a lot of opportunities to pray publicly. I mean, we, we live in a country where we can do this. And so we as churches, we take advantage of it, don't we? we, we it, it's probably, most of you here have probably been invited to at least pray at, at a, a family gathering, you know? And, and that's, in a sense, publicly. This is not privately. And so I think what we have to be cautious of is, is because that door is so wide open for us, we can tend to, to think that prayer is some type of display and even subconsciously a time in which we're going to inform and teach others how to pray. And, and I'm not totally condemning the fact that we're going to learn when others pray. I'm not saying that's wrong. But what I am saying is that when, when our motives to do it, as Jesus warned us, start getting tied up with that, I think we're playing with fire. I think we're running the potential of making shipwreck of our righteous deeds. And, and so, I just want to go back to the root, and I want to spend a little bit of time kind of honing in on why do we pray? That's, that's the question that pushed on me as I was working through this text was, all right, let's go back to why does Jesus not tell us, don't pray? He could have said that, and he could have removed the potential of us making shipwreck of this righteous deed. Don't pray. Why do we pray? Why do I pray? Why do you pray? Why did Jesus pray? And I think the answer is, is because God has spoken. God has said something to everybody. And it demands a response. And when we hear what God has said, we feel it. It's just like a conversation. If I sit down and say, hi, my name is Colton. How are you? It demands a response. I've engaged a conversation, and you in your human build feel that. And so we pray, or we're supposed to pray, because it's just a natural thing to do, to respond to God. And so what, what happens? Why, how can we pray in hypocrisy? How can you be a hypocrite in conversation, just by entering in the conversation? Well, it's because these people are praying in a way that they have no great concern. They have probably no concern, but maybe they have some concern of responding to God. They don't actually feel a need to say anything to God, but they want to look like people who have things to say to God. They want to have the appearance of a devout spiritual person who has heard God and wants to say something to God, who wants to express something to God. 
And Jesus says, that's hypocrisy. And they get their reward, the pleasure, or the, the commendation, or the, the praise of their fellow man. And so he's warning us, don't, don't, don't tangle up the good thing, the good deed of prayer with all the other things that might come out of it. Instead, get your, even put your body and your, your whole being in a place and continue to practice your prayer life this way in a private setting where all the other things, Satan can't even come into the room and start toying with you. Get yourself in a space, in an environment where you either can be authentic in the space or the only one you're fooling is yourself. And I think in some sense that test alone is a good weight on us, right? If we're not getting alone to pray with God, there's probably some type of disconnect in what, what prayer is supposed to be for us. Maybe we're not feeling the angst or desire to speak to God. My argument is, is if, if you don't feel a press, and this is, I know this is a widespread issue in our churches, at least in the Western world from what I've, I've, I've read about, seen, is that people aren't praying. Why are we not praying? And I would say because we're disconnected from the mission of God. All the things, all the goals in our life, all the rewards that we're trying to attain to, they're doable without God's help. Whereas... God's mission, the upside-down kingdom, disciple-making mission, that requires God's help. And you're going to feel that if that becomes the central focus of your life. You're going to feel this way, God, I need you. I'm heading to the grocery store today, and I know John, who works at the cashier spot, and we've had enough dialogue. We've had enough dialogue. I know he doesn't know you. I know he rejects you, and I want John so badly to know you. And I need you, God, to use my words, to use my body, to just consume me, spirit, lead me, that I may serve the purpose of being a light to John, and he may see that light, and he might glorify you, Father, and he might enjoy you forever as he was designed to. Do you feel that? It's the mission of God. And that's why we pray. And so that was a mini-sermon, but I just want so badly that when, when we're talking about prayer, let that drive you to say, am I connected to the mission? And I'm, am I praying authentically? And if you're saying, no, nah, I don't think I am, well, I'd say get a broader vision, get a bigger vision, and grab onto the mission of God and let that be what your life is spent for and go get it. I'm going to skip again over the Lord's Prayer. Even his referencing to the guys who babble in their prayer, what are they doing? They're trying to manipulate God. They're trying to take prayer, a response to God, and make it an incantation, uh, some type of method in which they might get some other reward that they can manufacture. And Jesus is speaking against this inauthenticity in prayer. He's speaking against hypocrisy in prayer. Verse 16, let's, let's cover fasting. We're going to take one last break before closing. When you fast, do not look sullen like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others when you are fasting, but only to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. To, to tackle some of the mechanics, 
they make their faces unattractive, and then he references, no, you put oil on your head and, and wash your face. You probably know this, but he, he's, he's simply saying, like, don't stop doing the things that, don't stop taking care of yourself so that it becomes obvious what you're doing. Once again, if, if you go to pray and you intentionally place yourself in a place of prayer where people can see you, you're obviously trying to do it for the attention of others. If you're fasting and you intentionally don't take care of yourself, you're trying to do it so that others may see you. Rather, put on your makeup. Rather, put the gel in your hair. Rather, uh, take a shower when you're fasting. Do these things when you fast, just like you would when you, were not, when you weren't fasting. And fasting is another one of those things where I know, I, I felt it too, Christians get antsy and they're like, oh, I just, I find it hard to fit fasting because I don't know how to do it without others knowing. And I just feel like, and, and I think we're coming from the right perspective when we start feeling that. But this is where I want to bounce back up to verse one. He doesn't say, don't practice your righteous deeds before other people. It's not what he says. It's about your motive. And so if your desire is to fast, and you should, I'm going to let Ryan tackle that as he's discipling you and all the other guys here at this church. I'm sure you've been told you should be fasting. When you fast, take care of yourself so that you're not trying to attract the, other, the attention of other people. Do your best to, to treat it as a normal thing. The only thing that's abnormal is you're fasting. And some, I'm a married man and I've got two kids. I can tell you for sure, I know it's impossible for me to fast without my wife knowing it. And beyond that, I'm pretty sure my two girls are going to know because I love to eat. And so they're going to, it's going to jump off the page pretty quickly to them when, when I, if I skip a meal. And, and I'm not making fasting only about food, but I am going to leave it on that for our context because I think that's primarily what it was. So it's not about whether people find out or not whether you're fasting. It's about your motive. It's about your desire. And, and I wanna, I'm going to comment on what I think the definition of fasting should be, or a good definition. Maybe it's a little, uh, it could be critique probably, but I think fasting is the bringing your body into unity with your soul to express something to God. To me, that, that, that's a general definition. So my soul is saying, when I go through some seasons, I'm like, God, I just want to express to you how much I am devoted to you, how much I love you, how much I adore you, how much, or, or, or it, it might just, how much I need you. God, I'm heading into a difficult season. Sometimes I fast intentionally for a difficult season. That's a common thing we talk about. God, I just, I want, I want everything about me to exude to you how much I really, really need you. And I, I need a form or a method to express that. And so I, I'll fast. I'll set aside food. And that's my method and means that as my body is saying, Colton, something's up. Something's off wire. Like, I need energy. I, I need food, Colton. And I'm saying, no body. You need God. That's what I need. I need God. And I'm aligning my body to feel as an expression to God. And it's an invisible thing, but it's a very real experience. It's a very real experience. And so, when you fast, set your reward, your gaze on the reward of the Father. Set aside the possible rewards of looking devout, looking spiritual, 
and let his reward be in your gaze and your drive and your motivation for your fasting. Let his presence, his goodness, his sight of you in this good deed be what's in your gaze. Verse 19, Jesus ends where I really, really wanted to start. Because I think that in some ways we can work through all these verses from Jesus' sermon and we can feel, again, coming out of the gates with be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, and Matthew, you know, Matthew 5, raising the bar of righteousness. And we can just begin to feel weighed down and bogged down like Jesus is just another law driver, rule driver. But he's not. And as his sermon and, and what I've tried to do is to keep in front of us that he is trying to push us and, and, and corral us as sheep to green pastures. He's trying to lead us to life and give it to us abundantly. And so verse 19, I think, is, is where I hope you can just feel the, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That you can feel the, the joy that Jesus is offering us. Let's look. Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The whole time, Jesus is saying, if your gaze and your focus on being righteous, on practicing your righteousness, is on earthly things, you will store up earthly things. You will have all the praise of mankind. You will have all the commendations, all the awards of your devoutness or spirituality, if that's what you want. But there's a greater mountain of treasure. There's one that, rather than, than these earthly ones, that will fade, they will dissolve, they will be no more. In a hundred years, in a thousand years, they will be nothing. Because they'll have rusted, or they have been eaten, or they have been stolen, or they just simply are not remembered. But there's a mountain where you can store treasures in, and you can pile them high, and they'll never fade, They'll never break, they'll never be eaten, they'll never be stolen, they are secure, and they are waiting for you. And you can store up as many as you want now in the upside-down kingdom, right now. Do you, do you see this? Can you envision it? Get, I, I'm trying to use imagery because I think it's helpful to us, and I want, I want us so badly to walk out of these, this room in the next few minutes and just have a, a, a focus, maybe it's a renewed focus or a fresh vision of I'm going to go and I'm going to store up stuff in heaven. I'm going to go and I'm going to build up all the joy in this life I can 
that I may enjoy it forever with my Father. Last comment, verse 21. I think it's so pivotal because it gives, I think, a little bit of a little bit more substance to what part of this reward is, at least. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I read this the first time, and I, at least in my studying for this, this, this session, when I read it first time, I thought, that, that's backwards. Translator got that wrong. Isn't it where, where my heart is, there's my treasure? Isn't, isn't that how that verse reads? It's not. And I think Jesus is trying to orient us and help us to see that, one, it is good and right to choose a treasure to go after. That's what you were built for. We've covered that. Put your gaze on God and, and, and his reward and, and strive after that. Strive after the joy of the reward of God. And know that if you do that, you will be made perfect. Because your heart will be shaped by what your treasure is. Your heart will be in the location of where your treasure is. Don't, don't get all freaked out about I got I to gotta get my heart feeling right about life. I got to get everything in me perfect before I can come to Jesus. Jesus is totally abolishing that and saying, nope, come, let's go. We're moving forward. We're bringing in the kingdom. And guess what? Set your gaze on the Father and your heart's going to be there. It's going to be shaped and molded by, by the treasure you have in heaven. And that, that was just so refreshing to me. And I hope that it just lands on you in a refreshing way to say, Jesus is not giving you laws and rules to try to sanctify you. He's giving you opportunities to store up treasures, and he's saying you'll be sanctified if you pursue those treasures. Is there a better invitation? Is there a better invitation you've ever heard in all your life than this? I can't think of any. Nobody's ever offered me that kind of work. Go work for all this great reward. It'll never end, it'll never die, and guess what? You'll become perfect when you're done with it. That's a gift.